Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, historians from throughout the state gather to discuss Florida's quincentennial in 2013, recognizing the first arrival of Europeans in North America almost 500 years ago. We need to reach the audience that never turns to PBS, and that is a large part of the viewership. In other words, those that did not intend to be educated, but may find it slipped in at the sports games or between a break in Bray's Anatomy. We'll visit Corey's Pharmacy in Vero Beach and take a trip to Payne's Prairie in Alachua County. I grew up in the area and as soon as I was old enough to come out on the prairie and roam around it at will, I fell in love with it and I spent a lot of my youth roaming around the prairie. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Florida Humanities Council recently hosted a scholar summit on Florida's upcoming quincentennial in 2013. Historians from throughout the state came together to discuss how the 500th anniversary of the European arrival to North America should be recognized. It was in 1513 that Juan Ponce de Leon first came to Florida, probably landing somewhere between Melbourne Beach and St. Augustine. Dr. Susan Parker is director of the St. Augustine Historical Society and says that as this important anniversary approaches, efforts should be made to reach the general public as well as academics. I'm going to start with the premise that I think any of us that have dealt with the public can is that not only is Florida's early history not well known, which I think most of it know, but really most of the nation's colonial history is not well known and that's part of the problem too. Ask most people what happened between the landing of the pilgrims and the signing of the Declaration of Independence and they probably can't tell you much. So we've really got uh, a void there as well. Uh, most people, I think, know about the nation's more typical, what we consider more typical colonial history, largely what they learned in elementary school from some advertising and the little reenactments that go on. So based on that, I would um, move for, to take opportunity for educating, as I said, at the widest level. And for this, I would suggest uh, going towards something towards the production of perhaps numerous public service announcements messages created for broadcast by the networks. Um, this is a requirement, I think, still, of network stations. PBS documentaries, I think all of us think, are wonderful and great tools, but we need to reach the audience that never turns to PBS, and that is a large part of the viewership. In other words, those that did not intend to be educated, but may find it slipped in at the sports games or between a break in Bray's Anatomy. In addition to outreach aimed at the general public, Dr. Parker believes that more educational resources dealing with Florida's Spanish colonial period should be made available, particularly primary source materials. People like, they like the words of the people that were there, the people that heard it firsthand or secondhand. And the secondary sources are good and they bring us the interpretation, but if we don't have the primary sources in translations, like I said in Spanish, and I hear this repeatedly, and that's why I'm bringing it up, not, I mean, I read Spanish, but all the time, you know, it's like, well, that's in Spanish, and I don't read Spanish. Um, 
and I usually keep my frustrated my frustration down on that comment, but it is an impediment, and I think it's something that, that we need to realize. Dr. Jim Cusick is curator at the P.K. Young Library and Special Collections Librarian at the University of Florida. He's also on the Florida Historical Society Board of Directors. Dr. Cusick also wants to improve the materials available to students and get primary documents online. Interestingly enough, though, as we come up on our 500th anniversary of the naming of Florida, um, I went and looked at some other states, particularly the states that were the original 13 colonies and also some of our former uh, borderlands, Spanish borderlands. Uh, Maryland has done a fantastic job of putting up its colonial records and the key, uh, particularly the key records that founded the colony and later the state of Maryland. Virginia's done it. Uh, the New England states have done it. New York has done it. Uh, Texas has done it. We have a longer colonial period than any of them, and we have virtually nothing online. Virtually nothing. All right? The only actual documents you can see from the colonial period, and I congratulate uh, the state of Florida and our archives on doing this, is the Spanish land grants page that is up. Dr. Cusick points out that part of the problem with getting the documents relating to Florida's Spanish colonial period online is that most of those documents are not in Florida. Most are in Spain, some are in Mexico, and then there's a lot of them that are also in Britain. So if we want to bring those items to the web, it means that we're going to have to kind of cooperate and ask the assistance of these other countries and express our desire to see at least portions of our colonial record go up where they would be uh, available to people. However, we do have one segment of the colonial papers dealing with the peninsula of Florida, East Florida, from the very end of the colonial period, which is in this country and is at the Library of Congress. Um, and uh, this has actually been indexed in English. Uh, the University of Florida and Flagler College uh, cooperated to put up this page uh, several years ago so that people could at least see the English language abstracts of what the documents actually say, although you cannot see the documents. You can only see the short abstract of what they are. Um, there's a similar one for a collection called the Stetson Collection, which is at the St. Augustine Historical Society, which also has a, uh, a similar index to it. My personal opinion is that it would be a real shame to let the 500th anniversary uh, go by and at the end of it have none of Florida's key uh, colonial documents and key colonial records online. Um, I think we should be working with the Library of Congress. I think we should be working with the state. Um, I think we should be working with Spain. I think we should be working with Britain to either put up those documents which are in this country and under our control um, or to possibly find ways to link uh, to projects in Spain and, uh, and uh, Britain because Spain and Britain are actively digitizing and putting up uh, archival records and so it's just a matter of being able to find them online. Um, this would be a tremendous uh, benefit uh, both for scholars who are working uh, in this subject area and also I think for things for schools uh, because we could take key documents and translate them into English and I think kids in Florida ought to know what the founding documents of their state are and what the most important document and they ought to be able to see them um, and find them. Uh, and, uh, and so, so I would say that if we want a, a, a fairly simple project, but a long-reaching project, 
uh, for 2013, that we ought to be really looking to doing what all of our contemporaries are doing in the Spanish borderlands and in the 13 original colonies, which is getting their historical heritage online in the new digital age uh, where people can see it. Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez is professor of history at the University of Central Florida. He points out that while the quincentennial celebration begins with Juan Ponce de Leon, it's important to relate the past to the present. I would like to start with Ponce de Leon and also end with Ponce de Leon. And I think that I'm doing that so that we can connect the studies that are being proposed with the present reality and the desires of um, students and teachers and museum goers, etc. Um, as a child, I also went to um, the Fountain of Youth. My, my father took me. I must confess that I was not impressed at all, having been to uh, Atahualpa's ransom room in, in Peru. It struck me at that early age as a, as a tourist trap, uh, although I learned of the term later. What did impress me, however, was uh, as a school uh, as, a, as a student in Puerto Rico, a field trip to Old San Juan where we saw the mummified body of Ponce de Leon. And that is the big difference between the phony and, and the, the genuine. That, that really inspired me. And to this day, uh, having not seen that mummy in a, lot, in a long time, is still very vivid in my in my mind. In recent years, the Hispanic population of Central Florida has grown to more than 350,000 in Orange and Osceola counties alone, and about half of them are Puerto Rican. While Juan Ponce de Leon sailed with Christopher Columbus in 1492, he brought his own expedition to Puerto Rico in 1508, where he became governor. Dr. Martinez Fernandez points out that the celebration of Juan Ponce de Leon's coming to Florida offers interesting opportunities to study Puerto Rican and Latin influences in Florida today. In terms of the state of the research, I can say that very little has been done and nothing has been published. Um, there will be a number published by the Centro de Estudios Puertorriqueños in Hunter College of the Central Journal dedicated exclusively to Puerto Ricans in Central Florida. So this is just beginning. There's some oral history projects. We were talking about preservation of sources. Well, it's, it's very important that we preserve these old sources from the 1500s. What about the sources of the 21st century, which are so hard to get? Uh, newspaper collections, for example. Um, also, one of the ways in which that population has transformed the landscape is politically. I was doing some research for that, for my piece in that volume, and I wanted to see the political trajectories in Orange County. The last time, well, Obama carried Orange County by 20%. The last time anybody had carried any Demo Democratic president had carried Orange County was back in 1944 with Roosevelt. Those are very significant transformations. And I'm going to dare say something that my Miami-focused uh, colleagues may, may disagree or have uh, another opinion, but I think this transformation that we're seeing and the, the political power of the Puerto Ricans in, the, in, in, in Central Florida may have already neutralized what was a very powerful Cuban Republican vote in South Florida. Now, lastly, I want to close back to Ponce de Leon. And it's very hard to relate what I'm 
presenting with Ponce de Leon, but I just want to show you how there's always a connection. And historians, we're always looking for these connections. If they don't exist, we make them up. But in this case, it's a real one. And it has to do with a movement out in Brevard County to erect a statue to Ponce de Leon as the first Latino in the United States, which I think it's it's very interesting connection <laughs> because it tells us of that of that growing population and their desire to connect to a history, although calling Ponce de Leon the first Latino may be a, a little bit of a stretch. Any good celebration includes food. Dr. Gary Mormino is professor of history at the University of South Florida. As we prepare to recognize Florida's quincentennial in 2013, Dr. Mormino says that food should be considered. I think the great American frontier right now is food. Uh, I'm a foodie, and uh, I set out to try to write a uh, history of Florida food. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while. But uh, food works very nicely in this debate. Uh, I always like to ask my students in Florida history the first day, what's the greatest, Ameri what's the greatest event in modern Florida history? Invariably, the answer is, you know, Flagler's Railroad, coming of Ybor City, uh, election of Charlie Crist, you know, so, so uh, I would argue the greatest, um, uh, the greatest event in modern Florida history is an event we probably don't know about. It, it occurred sometime in the early 16th century, probably on the east coast of Florida. Uh, it involved probably a Tamukuan or an ice or a Tequestan warrior meeting a Spanish sailor or soldier. And this is the beginning of what Alfred Crosby in his 1970s book called The Columbian Exchange. This, this, is, this is an event I think we can all agree upon. Um, but I'd like to enhance it. Perhaps the, the first contact involved an offering of maize porridge, a raw oyster, a gourd containing perhaps the black drink. Uh, I, as a romantic, would like to think that uh, perhaps Spaniards and Native Americans shared uh, meat and game and fish built upon wooden spikes and sticks that the Arawak Indians called barbacoa, uh, the, the origin of the word barbecue. Uh, food is power. Spaniards, who were in the midst of creating the greatest empire since Rome in the early 16th century, uh, the food they carried enhanced their sense of moral superiority. Uh, the fact that native women uh, performed agricultural work, that the natives did not plant their crops in rows, simply affirmed this, uh, this notion. Uh, the Spanish historian uh, Fernandez de Oviedo writes of uh, Ponce's second voyage in 1521 that, quote, he was outfitted with 200 men and 50 horses. It was also noted that he, quote, took mares and heifers, swine, sheep, and goats, and it was supplied with all kinds of seed. And thus began the, the, the great Columbian exchange. The Florida Humanities Council sponsored the Scholar Summit to discuss Florida's upcoming quincentennial in 2013.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books on Florida, look at historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. When I became of age, my mother called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up now. Pretty soon you'll take a bride. And then she said, just because you become a young man now, there's still some things that you don't understand now. Before you ask some girl for a hand now, keep your freedom for as long as you can now. My mama told me, you better shop around. Oh yeah, you better shop around. Your local drugstore is the place to shop around for everything from toothpaste to inexpensive cameras and is the place to have prescriptions filled. Janie Gould has this look at an independent drugstore that's been serving Vero Beach for more than half a century. Corey's Pharmacy has operated in the same spot on Vero's beach side for more than half a century. There were no schools and just three or four stores on the Barrier Island when Callie Corey, her late husband Luther, and their children arrived in 1956. We drove up to four of the drugstores now and looked around Wendy and uh, no one around and we thought this was a very desolate place. But the next day looked better so we stayed. Something told you then that maybe this would work out as a place to do business and raise your family. Corey's Pharmacy started with a lunch counter in addition to the store and the pharmacy that you have now. And you made food for the lunch counter in the early days. I would make banana bread at home for the coffee crown in the mornings and the baked hams and meatloaf. And then we made sandwich spreads here in the store. So we had a nice lunch crowd here every day that came for coffee in the morning, back for lunch, and coffee again in the afternoon. The summers must have been really, really dead. The summers were very slow here, but we had a good local crowd that showed up every day for the, for the usual, and uh, the, the old Realmar crowd that was here during the years, they were only here in the winter, but they supported us and enabled us to stay alive and have a drugstore. What's your most treasured memory of all your years in business? Anything that really stands out in your mind? Probably when we paid off the mortgage. <laughs> when was that? <laughs> uh, probably in the early 60s. <laughs> I'm in the store now. I'm looking around at an array of products, including more sunscreens than you can imagine. In the early days, there were no sunscreens, and you sold two types of suntan products. Well, everyone baked in the sun, and uh, you only had copper tone just for tanning, and sea and ski, that were the two popular ones, but maybe I have 40 different brands in here now, all of them with protection in them. But everybody loved to go to the beach and just stay out in the sun all day and say tan. How about baby lotion and iodine? Did you sell some of that? Yes, people did mix that. It was amazing. It surely only stained the skins and certainly did nothing for their skin. While the Corys were working in the store, their children often played at Hummiston Beach. They were under the watchful eye of the lifeguard, Charlie Galnick. They could go up and play at the lifeguard station there where he always knew where they were and watched them, and I'd be working in the drugstore. Yeah, I'd go up to see if they were all right every once in a while, and Charlie would take a finger and point each way to where they were. One of the busiest times in the store was Wednesday evening, when the Press Journal was delivered. The local newspaper was a weekly until the 1970s. Quite a scurry to get to the uh, paper here to see who was uh, moving, who was getting married, what new additions to the family, so we could get all the news. 
so this was a community meeting place in a way for people. Yeah, it was kind of the hub of the beach, and uh, we uh, appreciate all the uh, confidence they gave to us as young and foolish and starting a pharmacy. I'm sure we had our moments of doubt when the bank account was very low in the summer, but we managed to get through it all right. You work every day, right, Mrs. Corey? I fortunately enjoy good health. I'm here six days a week and home on Sunday doing my housework then. One of the uh, iconic symbols of the uh, Central Beach District is the clock outside Corey's Pharmacy. Have you always had that clock, or does it just seem to me that it's always been here? I believe the clock went up in maybe mid-60s. It's been there ever since. And the, like, the two storms we had a few years ago, it was stayed right there and never even a hand blew off. It's amazing. I thought when we came back it would be in scrambles and at least the hands blown off, but it stayed right in place. Corey's Pharmacy has been here 56 years. Is it going to be here another 56? I certainly hope so. Grandson Mark's here, and he now has a son, and I have two more grandchildren that are interested in being here, too. So I hope it keeps on going. That was Callie Corey in Vero Beach. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. My mama told me, you better shop around. I don't make a This is Florida Frontiers. As travelers drive through the Great Shallow Depression on I-75 just south of Gainesville, few of them realize they're crossing a natural wonder that has played an important role in the history of North Florida. Bill Dudley talks with the author of a book on Payne's Prairie, a region that represents the ongoing relationship between Florida's people and its landscape. Writer and nature guide Lars Anderson leads a group of sightseers down a steep trail into the Alachua Sink, a large hole in the ground near the northern edge of Payne's Prairie. But this is, this is the big basin of the Alachua Sink, and you'll see old postcards from the 1800s of people sitting on that big boulder over there, for instance. At the bottom of the trail, water heads toward the sink in a swift flowing current that since prehistoric times has kept Payne's Prairie from becoming just another shallow North Florida lake. It is completely unique to anywhere here or anywhere in the world. It is just a completely unique area because of the sinkhole here that's created this huge marsh area. Lars Anderson says he first became fascinated by the prairie as a boy in Gainesville in the 1960s. I grew up in the area, and as soon as I was old enough to come out on the prairie and roam around it at will, I fell in love with it, and I spent a lot of my youth roaming around the prairie. Years later, the research to produce an educational tape about North Florida led Anderson to write what may be the first ever book about the prairie, published by Pineapple Press. I realized that Payne's Prairie, besides being this incredible wildlife sanctuary, was also a really, really important place in Florida's history. From the earliest Indians to the Spanish conquest, right to the Civil War and the aftermath. It's been a focal point for travel, for wars, for local interests, for outings. Retired University of Florida professor and local historian Ben Picard. Even in the present day, it's become the main tourist attraction in Gainesville. It's no longer an historical or a commercial spot but it is the tourist spot in Gainesville in the area. Nomadic hunter-gatherers roamed the prairie about 12,000 years ago. Later, a group called the Cades Pond people built mounds in the area. The Spanish, who came here in 1539, found Tamuqua Indians living nearby. 
The prairie became a part of the giant cattle ranch called La Chua until a century later when the Spanish abandoned their missions and their cattle to Creek Indians called Seminoles moving in from the north. In 1774, the Indians welcomed a young man from Philadelphia named William Bartram. His book, Bartram's Travels, provides one of the earliest descriptions of what he called the Alachua Savannah. We have some of the best records from Bartram of what it was like living in the 18th century, the Seminole villages, where he visited and he described. He described this place as a paradise. He said the people were free and active, they had an abundance of crops, and he said this is a utopia. And obviously, the world would want to come here, and that's what he was envisioning. But in 1812, the defeat of Chief King Payne by a group of encroaching American settlers led by Daniel Noonan marked the beginning of the end for the Alachua Seminoles. At this point, there was a lot of settlers coming in, so there was a lot of conflict for this area, which finally in 1835 resulted in warfare. The first battle of what became the Second Seminole War took place here on Payne's Prairie, out on the south side when Osceola with the band of warriors attacked a a wagon train of army supplies. Weeks later, the Seminoles used rifles captured in the raid to massacre Major Francis Dade and his troops as they rode north from Fort Brook near Tampa, beginning the bloody Second Seminole War. In later years, cattle ranching continued on the prairie until in the 1870s, the sink became plugged. The savannah began flooding. For the next 20 years, Lake Alachua, as it was called, was a haven for fishermen and steamboats, until it suddenly drained in 1892, leaving millions of fish rotting in the sun. Then, in the early 1920s, the prairie was divided by a highway. I sometimes jokingly tell people that's probably the largest Indian mound in Florida. When they first were digging on the south side of the basin, they had to make a cut into Bowen Bluff and use that dirt that they dug out of that cut. They used that to fill across the prairie for the highway. Well, it turned out that they had tapped into many archaeological sites right there in the bluff and had spread all the artifacts and dirt out on the basin with the fill there. So when you're driving across that prairie on 441, you just (laughs) take a moment's pause and realize you're in 12,000 years of Florida history. Today, the land still bears the scars of a system of dikes and canals built by the descendants of William Camp, a phosphate baron turned cattle rancher who bought the entire prairie in 1906. But in the 1950s, a lady named Marjorie Carr started a drive to have the prairie preserved as a wildlife sanctuary and uh, spearheaded the efforts to have it designated in 1963 as the first wildlife preserve in the state. In 1970, the state officially acquired just over 17,000 acres of prairie and surrounding lands. At first, they weren't sure what they wanted to do with it. There was talk of reflooding it and making a big lake and attractions associated with that. There was talk about using some of the old camp's dikes to have a sort of tramways going across the prairie to view wildlife. But fortunately, the Park Service decided to maintain it in its completely natural state. The question became, how do we know what it was? And to use for a base, they decided to read Bartram's book and use that as a foundation for their efforts to maintain the prairie in its natural state. It has been handled in so many ways. You know, they wanted to dredge it, they wanted to dam it, they put roads through it. Uh, Then they come back and say, well, it's a special area. They try to preserve it. Everything imaginable that has been done in Florida has been done to that bit of land. And so it it sort of is a central focus of of the possibilities of preserving what we have. Because despite the roads, despite the lumbering, and despite the intrusions, it still exists.
and we still have it. You can walk out there and have a sense of what Florida originally was. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until then, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.